This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. This podcast is proudly in association with Pitch Sport Football, the app that allows you to interact with other West Ham fans, pick your starting eleven, and participate in fan time videos. This app is absolutely free, so like I've done, like Hex has done, and like thousands of other West Ham fans have done, get this downloaded if you haven't already. That's Pitch Sport Football. You listen to the West Ham Way podcast with Dave and X. Oi, oi. Good evening and welcome to the West Ham Way podcast with myself, Dave Walker, and serial YTK blogger, XWHU employee. On tonight's episode, we're joined by one of the nicest fellas in football. John Hartson talks to us about joining West Ham, kissing the badge, scoring goals for fun, kicking Isle Berkovich, and successfully beating cancer. X will also be giving us exclusive news and views, so stay with us for what should be a cracking show. John, how are you, pal? I'm very well, boys. Really good, thank you. Good stuff, good stuff. John, you had a fantastic career, and tonight we're going to be focusing on your time at West Ham. Take us back to when you was at Arsenal and how the move to West Ham came about, and also, was it true that Arsenal Wenger actually wanted you to stay? That's correct, yes. I, um, I signed originally, I, I signed um, for Arsenal from Luton um, under George Graham. And um, I signed a five-year contract in 1995. And after, after two years, <clears throat> sorry, after a year, um, Bruce Rioch, George obviously got the sack. And then Pat Rice took over for a while. We got to the Cup Winners' Cup final. We finished the 95-96 season quite strongly. 
I scored in the Cup Winners' Cup final against Aragotha. We, we lost in the Pacte de France. Um, I was only 20 years of age, so I always had something to tell my grandchildren that, you know, I'd scored in the European final at 20. I'm immediately thinking about things like that um, yeah, yeah. when I was at Arsenal. And what happened was um, I never quite got, you know, um, got on particularly well with Bruce Rioch. And, um, and the one good thing Bruce did for the club, obviously, was sign Dennis Burkamp from, from Inter Milan. I think he got Dennis for about eight and a half million pounds. So when Dennis Burkamp came in, it, it was great because he was a world-class player. He was a household name, a Dutch, you know, Dutch superstar for the national side, Holland. And um, that meant that my game time obviously suffered a little bit. Um, naturally, because I had Ian Wright, who I played with the previous six months, I was at the club before Dennis arrived. And, uh, and then when Dennis Bergkamp came, you know, they became a fantastic pairing, you know, legendary in the Premier League. They linked up very well together. They hit it off straight away. Mm. So my game time, um, you know, suffered a little bit. I wanted to play. I wanted to, you know, I felt as if I, um, I you know, I, I earned a place in the team. And myself and Wrighty played through the middle quite a few times and Dennis played in behind in the hall. But um, what happened then, the following season, um, Arsene Wenger came in and uh, I think there was quite a lot of interest and, and one, one of the interesting um, clubs was of course West Ham as well and I was living in Brookmans Park in Hertfordshire so I was pretty settled um, so what happened was um, Arsene Wenger said to me John we, we would like you to stay at the football club and we'd like you to learn this was in 97 when he arrived at the club We'd like you to learn and progress, you know, with these two great players. He said, um, with Wright and Bergkamp, he said, your next one in. He said, I, I, I'd like to give you a new deal. Uh, I, I three years on my current deal. But I heard of West Ham's interest and um, I'd spoken to Harry uh, through my agent. And basically, you know, Harry said, look, John, you know, we, we're in a desperate situation. We're near the bottom of the table. We're really struggling for goals. We've got some great players coming through the system. We've got some fantastic players at the club. It's just that we can't put the ball in the net, he said, and um, I'm bringing another striker in. He didn't tell me who it was, but obviously we know it was Paul Kitson now. And um, as soon as I heard of Harry's interest, I thought, well, what a great challenge. And although I was leaving a, a huge club in Arsenal, I thought West Ham is another massive club. You know, I'd gone from North London to East London, you know, to join West Ham. Yeah. And um, and quickly, more or less overnight, um, I'd explained to Arsene Wenger that I, I want to go because I want to play and he couldn't guarantee me football every week. But Harry could. He said, look, John, you play every game for us. You know, I'll, I'll build a team around you. I want to sign some other players as well. Shortly after he signed me, Stevie Lomas came to the club. Trevor Sinclair arrived. Uh, one or two others uh, were there as well and coming in and we had great youth team players coming through. So um, that was it. I, I made my mind up and I met Harry Redknapp um, in the Swallow Hotel, Junction 26, Waltham Abbey. Yep. Um, and it's now the Marriott, I believe. It it's not the Swallow anymore. Um, and we met in there, myself, my representatives, Harry, Peter Story, and... Um, Literally, I signed a, a four or five-year contract at West Ham, and the, the deal was done more or less overnight. 
and, and that's how particularly the move came along. I, I wanted to play. I wanted regular football and, and, and West Ham offered me that. And besides offering me that, I'd always had, I'd always watched West Ham on, on television, you know, the great players over the years that, that they've had, you know, the Devonshires and the Bishops, the Brookings, the, the Cotty and McAvenny and um, Alvin Martin, you know, household names, Ray Stewart, um, you know, great penalty taker, wasn't he? A good Scottish fullback. Mm. You know, I, I'd always, you know, I'd had a little eye on West Ham and I'd always thought they were a great club and I'm not patronising now because I signed for you, but I just thought, what a great move. Um, and I was made to feel welcome and I was made to feel wanted, you know, and, um, and basically, lads, I was chomping at the bit. I was, um, I was 21 years of age. I was raring to go. I was hungry. I had desire. And I think I showed that in my first sort of 18, you know, 15 months or so at the club. I was like a man possessed. Mm, that was a great spell at the club. Um, how, how important, obviously, was Harry Redknapp to the decision process? And what was he like to actually play under? Hardy was excellent with me. Um, and it's quite fair to be honest with you if you're doing the business and you're training properly and uh, you know you're scoring goals for him which was my job ultimately and I think when you hear Ari speak about me now in his book or whenever he does interviews about myself or ex-players he gives me a lot of praise and he shows me an awful lot of credit yeah he digs me out a little bit as well for getting myself unfit and I think he's he was probably right in that sense. Um, I probably let it get to my head a little bit. Um, my 24 goals in the Premier League. I missed the last four goals um, of the second season I was at West Ham. Uh, sorry, I missed the last four games through suspension. I got sent off twice that year. And although I got 24 goals, I could have got 30 goals. Um, I, I did it at a canter, really. Mm. Um, but, you know, he, he gave me some stick about, you know, training and I put a bit of weight on and, and he was absolutely right. And, you know, um, I've got no qualms about that. Maybe if I'd been a bit more professional, maybe if I'd had my time again, um, you know, I might, have, I might have made sure I was fitter. I let it, I let, I got a little bit, um, I got a little bit, I won't say unprofessional, but I let it get to my head a little bit and maybe it just took my focus away from what, it, what you needed to be like and what you needed to train like and act like as a professional footballer. And although I was only 21, 22, um, I was very young. I'd only been up from Swansea six or seven years. I broke a record at Arsenal. I broke a record at West Ham. And I was in a bit of a bubble, to be honest. And, you know, I think now looking back, I'm 45 now, a lot wiser, you know, a little bit older, of course. Um, responsibilities now with the children and everything that I carry myself. I didn't have them tools when I was 21, 22. I was young, I was naive, I was going out a lot. Um, I was getting recognised when I went out. I enjoyed that part of it. And we had a great, we had a great squad of players. Ian Dowie, you know, Bish, Monks, Lomi. We'd often go for liquid lunches, as they say, you know, regular you know, <laughs> pints and lunches and things like this. There's so many different bars in and around. Monks lived in Loughton. And, um, you know, and I, we stopped in the Volunteer, a little pub coming up the road as you go over Thaden Boys um, on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side as you're heading down onto the M25. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I enjoyed the social as well. A great bunch of lads there. They love their golf. We play a lot of golf together. I probably just did, you know, and Harry gave me a bit of a stick for that. And he's absolutely spot on. And in, with hindsight, if I'd got my head down and if I'd had the, you know, the... Um, the knowledge and you know the the the, the, um, the experiences that I have now mm. back then, then things might have been a bit different. I might have stayed at West Ham for a lot longer, but um, it was how it was at that particular time. I was very headstrong. Uh, I love to enjoy myself, and um, as I said, Harry has been fantastic. Gave me a lot of praise. He called me Superman once. He said nobody could deal with John Hartson. He was smashing everything out of the park, scoring goals. I was unplayable at times. Yeah. But then, towards the end of my career at West Ham, I had the unfortunate training ground incident with Al Berkovich, which I regretted. It was it was it was a wrong wrong decision for me. I shouldn't have reacted that way. Um, and things just sort of you know, built up from there. And ultimately, I left the club after 18 months and I'd had three or four more years left on a deal. They got good money for me, 7.5 million, which more than doubled what they paid for me. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, I've got no regrets, really. I don't, you know, you can't really live life with regrets. You know, you, you act how you do at that particular time. Um, you can't go back. And um, but with hindsight, things might have been different, you know. They got good money for me, and Harry might have just thought, Look, maybe John's peaked, maybe I've just had the best out of John Hartson, maybe he just needs somewhere else. The crowd got on to me a little bit over the Berkovich incident. The crowd would naturally get on to you if, if you're not as prolific as, as what I was when I came to the club, and I don't blame anybody for that. Um, it, it just the way that it was. And then I ended up leaving the football club. Um, and Harry might have just thought, you know what, we're getting great money for John. Um, I'll let him go. I'll let him go. And, and that's how it coincided. Mm. I mean, you're quite right, John. When you joined West Ham, you also joined a relegation battle. When you walked into that dressing room, what was the morale like? What was the atmosphere like amongst that squad? Well, the one thing that surprised me was the quality in, in the group. Mm. There was a lot of good players in that dressing room. Yeah. You know, an awful lot of good players. And the one thing I can remember thinking was, I can't believe that we're in this position that we're in. You know, we, we had good players in there. And, um, you know, you look at Ian Bishop and John Moncur, Stevie Lomas, Trevor Sinclair, uh, Tim Breaker, Dixie. You know, most of them guys could have played in any other, in, you know, in any other, maybe outside of the top six, possibly. In the Premier League, you know they they were good, experienced, you know players that could have that could have gone and played anywhere else. But you know they were at West Ham, and um, straight away we we signed Paul Kitson and um, we hit it off. We we didn't particularly work on anything. Uh, it was just one of those things that Paul I think was in a similar situation to me at Newcastle. I think he was held back a little bit, you know, with Alan Shearer and maybe Les Ferdinand. I'm not sure who was at there at the time. Um, but I think Kitts was in a similar position. He was bursting at the seams to, to play regular. So you had two lads in, myself and Paul Kitson, who were, were just ready to go. We were ready to fly. And Harry partnered us up. And, um, you know, Kitts was unbelievable. You know, people talk about my form at the time. Paul scored eight goals. 
uh, ice code five. We had some fantastic results um, during that last 12, 13 games. The lads, I think we give the dressing room a lift as well. Um, I think the, the current players that were there, they felt as if, if they put the ball in the box and they, they give us the balls at the right area. They had, they had two good centre forwards who could score goals and we proved that. Went to Coventry and won 3-1, went to Leicester and won 1-0 midweek game. We smashed Sheffield Wednesday 5-1 or 5-0 at home. We should have got a result at Old Trafford. Um, mm. We went away from there. I think we were 1-0 up, 2-1 up, and we ended up losing whatever it was. Um, I think Paul Scholes, the smallest man on the pitch, scored a, <laughs> scored a header in the last last minute of the game, <laughs> got in between two of the defenders, and Harry wasn't happy about that because we worked so hard at, at United uh, to get... To, you know, to get where we were in that game. But we just turned it around and the results started winning and then, you know, winning breeds winning. The lads picked up a lot of confidence and, um, you know, with everybody, you know, we galvanised the dressing room and, um, you know, without taking all the credit, myself and Paul, the lads showed, um, you know, great strength and we dug in because when you're in a relegation battle, it's, it's not all about good players and playing well. You've got to dig in you got you got to show character, and that's where West Ham are right now. You know, nine games to go. They need characters. They need leaders. Mm, they need fighters, because it's not all going to go your way. You got some really tough fixtures, but you know you're going to do that. Of course, you need quality, and of course, you need the strikers to put the ball in the net, and the defenders to defend strongly. But ultimately, now you're in a scrap. You're in a dogfight, mm. and um, you know you'll be able to see now who's up for this scrap. It's not just about tippy-tappy football. Now you've got to go and win tackles. You've got to go and get the crowd on your side. Get the crowd buzzing. Get them off their seat. You know, uh, this, this is what you want now from your players. And we seem to have that. You know, we, we had that. The crowd were with us. And we finished the season really strongly. Spot on, John. It was, a, it was a great time to be a fan of the club. And actually, yours and Paul's first game together from memory was an iconic game against Tottenham, the 4-3 win, which still to this day, I've had a season ticket 30 years now, and that game is still right up there as one of my favourite all-time games because it had everything, you know, it was pissing down with rain. It was That's like, right. it was a really end-to-end game, 4-3, our, our local rivals, important game and so on. What, what do you remember about that game? And Adley, what was that feeling when you got that goal? Well, atmosphere and everything yeah the atmosphere was electric the atmosphere was electric but what what was really interesting was on my on my my debut for the club was derby away mm. at, at the old baseball ground and yeah. um i think rio ferdinand played in midfield that day uh, yeah, i was there 16 or 17 mm. julian dix got sent off um yeah. just before half time and i think we come out the second half and the crowd was singing there's only one julian dix <laughs> so Harry's thinking, well, where do I go from here? Yeah. Um, and Asanovic, who, who was a top player, Croatian, I think he scored a penalty for that. I remember all these things vividly. I clashed with the Eagle Stimach on the halfway line. Mm. I got booked, and I think that was my fifth booking. So straight away, um, I'm on a bleeding suspension. Mm. I've come to the club. There's big excitement and record signing and everything else. And I get booked in my first game. And then I think I've got to miss a couple of games. I've got to miss a couple of games. I'm sure that's how it panned out. And then the following Monday, I've got another week or so to wait for my home debut. 
which came against Spurs. And I remember the weather being absolutely atrocious. It was raining, it was swirling. The pitch was normally a great surface, but it was a cow field. It was a cow field on that particular night. It rained all day, and I'm not too sure whether the referee almost called it off. But the game went ahead, and um, it couldn't have gone any better because it was a jam-packed uh, Upton Park. Spurs end was absolutely full, as, as you'd expect. Uh, the West Ham fans, I heard about West Ham, Tottenham, you know, it's, it's a big game to win for the fans. They love beating Spurs, vice versa. And I played in the North London derby, of course, against Spurs for Arsenal. Um, but I can remember that I scored, Paul Kitson scored, and I think Dixie got two. Yeah. And I won the penalty. It was 3 all, and um, the balls rolled into me inside the box. And I got tackled from behind and I went over, which was hard for me to go over, lads. I never used to go over, you know. I think the ground thudded when I actually hit the floor. Um, it used to call me Honest John for nothing, lads. I never used to go over. But um, it, it came in from behind, the tackle, and um, I went over it anyway. And the referee deemed it as a penalty. And I think, I'm not sure if I've seen a better penalty ever. You know, Dixie, just mm. confident. Um, you know, just ran up about 20 yards and he just thunderbolted it into the roof of the net. I think it was Ian Walker who was the goalkeeper. He had absolutely no chance. Mm. And then the, the, the whole place just, you know, just erupted. Um, it was my home debut. I think I won man of the match. I did an interview after the game with Sky. I think David Howells' dad had passed away um, mm. in the mm. afternoon. And I'm not too sure. I think I sent my condolences to the family. Um, so, but it was a wonderful, wonderful way to make your debut. I'm not so sure about kissing the badge. Um, <laughs> my, my agent had said to me, look, John, West Ham fans, these are passionate supporters. And um, when you score tonight, or if you score, you run away into that crowd and you make sure, son, you kiss that badge. Yeah. You show them what it means to you to score on your home debut and I look back at it now my hair is all scraggly and thin I wish I'd shaved it off and um, it's all orange and minging and, and I, I, I'm look at holding the badge and I look at it now and I cringe a little bit because you know, a lot of fans don't believe in that kissing the badge and I agree because sometimes you know um, you move on and this that and the other so uh, I look back at it now and um you know, delighted with the goal and I ran away. I did what my agent told me to do and uh, the crowd loved it. I ran over to the check-in, run on the other end. Mm. So it was a wonderful start. It, it couldn't have gone any better, really, but you know. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, you, see, you mentioned Eagle Stimmage there and it just triggered a memory of, of mine. Didn't you clash with him in a home game? I did. Well, with Eagles? Yeah. What was the issue between you two? Well, Eagle, <laughs> Eagle certainly had my number. Oh, right. <laughs> he had my number because yeah. he, got, he got me booked at Derby. Yeah, and I'm thinking, right, I can't wait to play against him next time. Yeah. And then we rolled along the floor, and our arms, our elbows came together. And I think it looked a bit worse than what it was. And I was sent off in a home yeah. game. Yeah, like, he's uh, stupid. I'm 21, and it's naive, it's boisterous, it's just daft. When I look back, I think, well, what am I doing? I'm a little bit embarrassed by it, really. Um, but again, I was 21, I had loads of spunk, I had loads of energy, I had loads of anger, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, and t- managers bought me for that, you know, George Graham bought me for that. Um, 
Joe Kinnear, paid seven million. Martin O'Neill bought me. Brian Robson, Harry Redknapp, Gordon Strachan, Mark Hughes. Everybody bought me for that. So I couldn't go away from the aggression and the physical aspect of the game because I loved it. I, I, I reveled in that physical side of the game, mm. that body contact, backing in, showing people how strong I was. And, and Harry used to say, John, you know, you, nobody can live with you. You know, that night against Spurs, I put Saul Campbell and the ball in the back of the net that night. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and so... I couldn't go away from it too much, but looking back over the you know the years that went on, I played 224 games for Celtic, and I only got sent off once. So as I got older, you know, I curbed that. It's you know, it's controlled aggression, if you like. Yeah. Because you're not worth anything to any club if you're constantly on you know in the stand. They pay new wages, the managers and the club, and they will, if they can't play you, they you're no good to anybody. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there, John, about, you know, those attributes that you had. That's what managers bought into you for. It's the same with the fans. That's why the fans bought into you. And that's why you've been popular wherever you've been, you know, and West Ham fans more so. They love that grit, that passionate hunger, that desire, and that kind of put your head in front of anything mentality. Um, and me, for one, and I know X is the same, and every West Ham fan is the same. When we saw you kiss that badge, especially against Tottenham, mate, I think your agent was absolutely spot on there. Absolutely spot on. <laughs> oh, uh, it's, nice, it's nice for you to say that, but you know, for me, as a you know, as a as a human being, I sometimes look back and I cringe. I cringe at some of the things. But <laughs> listen, at the end of the day, you know, um, some of the sending offs. I think I got. I think I'm the only player to be sent off twice for three different Premier League clubs, which I'm, I'm not proud of. I got sent off twice at Arsenal. Twice at Wimbledon, twice at West Ham. I don't think oh, that's really? ever been done. There's people who've had more sending offs than me, but not for three different clubs. So it's something that, you know, uh, particularly when I boast about, but uh, it's just something that I probably had a, a problem with my temper. Um, I couldn't control it. And, and now I've been, I've been, you know, a lot older, a lot more experience when I was in my late 20s and 30s and early 30s, things like this. I was able to control that, you know, I, I could, I could, you know, I, I didn't have to go in throwing my arms around, I'd get my body in first of all and then get hold of the ball and things like this. I used to take it very personal when we went behind as well. If, 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 if the game wasn't going our way, I would be the one to try and do something about it. I'd have to go and kick somebody to get myself up for it, um, which, which again, um, you know, was something that I, I, I didn't manage to control very well. And obviously the Al Berkovich incident, I bring that up before, you know, to give you a chance, lads, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, it's coming. You know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't need to react that way. It was my aggression. And, you know, I, I tackled Isle from behind. And as I went to lift him up, he, he, threw, he threw his arm at me, a little tap, a little punch on, my, on, my, on the top of my leg. And then I just reacted, I lashed out, and that was aggression, and I, I shouldn't have done that. Um, I shouldn't have done that. And it's be the biggest regret in my life, really. It was just the wrong reaction. Um, and uh, we got on great, me and I, you know, we, we played together, and he was fantastic, you know, he had great balance and guile, and made a lot of my goals at West Ham. There was never an issue between us at all. It was just that, moment and it just happened um 
And as I said, that it brought on a lot of embarrassment to myself and my family because although I was aggressive and you know I, on the pitch, you know I, I I was up for you know taking on challenges against the biggest and the toughest centre halves, but that was wrong. You know that was wrong. I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'd never done that ever on a football pitch before. The, the, the last shout that I did there on that training ground with, with Alberkovic, and it was something that. You know, even surprised myself. Why, why did I do that? And I still scratch my head today. But Let's be honest, John. It was really unlucky in the sense, though, that there was a, a camera there to catch yeah. it. I mean, those sort of things go on. Yeah. You know, not in the training grounds quite frequently, but just no one sees it. But that particular incident, I, I don't know how it got filmed, but whether it was with a mobile phone or whatever it was, and then yeah. it's all over the papers. And I'm sure that's happened for other players. And nothing's ever came of it. So, you know, that, that must have been really disappointing in that respect. That's something, that's something that did happen as a relatively, you know, you're saying you should have done it. Fair enough, but it got blown out of all sort of proportion, really, didn't it? Yeah, well, the thing is, the thing is, you know, you make a good point. You make a good point that it, it was a mobile phone and somebody was actually recording the session. And then um, it went quiet for a few days. Nothing was said, nothing was known. And then all of a sudden it appears on News at 10 because somebody has gone and sold the footage. Gosh, news um, at 10, blimey, didn't realize it got that big. Yeah, to a national newspaper wow. and everything. And, and news is news, lads. You know, news is mm -hmm. newspapers, it's radio, it's television, it's podcasts, it's social media. You know, news is news. When news breaks, it breaks. Yeah. It goes across all the channels, um, all over the world. And I can remember being front page of every national newspaper, you know, certainly in the country. Um, but listen, as I said, you know, I regretted it. And me and I have met up since. And I met him uh, a few years ago when Wales played Israel over in Tel Aviv. We had a bit of lunch together. The cameras made sure they were there. I don't know who set that meeting up, by the way, but they, had, they ended up <laughs> appearing there. Um, but no, as I said, it was, it was something, aggression, again, that you managed to, to curb. Um, as you get older, you know, these things you can control a little bit when you get a bit wiser. But, um, you know, it was one of those things that um, I, I deeply regretted because I always felt that when you go through your career then, yeah, I like John, you know, he's, he's a good centre forward, he scores goals. People say, you know, nice things about him off the pitch. He's a nice guy, you know, um, talk to anybody, charity, blah, blah, blah. But did you see that incident? You know, people go back to it and it's just something that, you know, certain things, you look at Roy Keane and when Roy uh, walked out um, of the national team um, when he was involved with a spat with Mick McCarthy. Now, Roy Keane was a magnificent footballer, won titles, won caps, um, you know, some unbelievable performances from Man United. Just, just a world beater on the pitch, really. A, a real tough battler winner and people still bring up that incident about you know they, they like to talk about the the big stories the, the 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 negative stories if you like yeah and sometimes i think some people i'm not saying everybody but people wouldn't don't want to talk about my 33 goals and 71 appearances whatever it was for west ham it's almost a goal every two every every sort of two games mm. people go ah, See that instant, Alberto John's a lunatic. He's the nutter. He's this. He's that. They don't know you, but you know I've given them that opportunity 
to judge me because yeah. of my stupidity, you know. Um, and I just think the world is like that. You know, people like to talk about the bad things, you know, rather than concentrating on, on the positives. Well, you've only got to look at the nose. I mean, everything that's reported is negative. Yeah. No, no one wants to report on anything that's positive because I think bad news stories sell. Yes, I think you're right, yeah. I think that's what it comes down to, unfortunately. What was the gaffer's reaction to that incident, John? Well, he called me in straight away, Harry. He called me in and he, he knew the... Um, you know, he, he knew it was, it was going to go viral. He, he knew, Harry, um, you know, and um, and what he said to me was, he basically said, look, John, he said, I, I love you to bits. He said, but um, I've got to do something about this. He said, uh, and he find me. He find me on the spot. Um, I had to take a check in and find me, and I think it went to a charity, I believe. Um and also, he came with me and supported me with the FA, and I got fined £20,000 and banned for so many games. And, um, you know, <clears throat> he was as shocked as anybody, really, because he knew, you know, Harry, I'd, I'd really got to know him, and I, I play golf with Harry now every, you know, every once in a while, I bring him up to play my charity day. <clears throat> up here in, um, at Turnbury, he came up last year, and whenever I bump into him on BT Sport or whatever shows, we reminisce and we get on great. We, we, he's like a father, really. He just talks to me and he's always nice and, you know, a gentleman around me, really. Um, so he was as shocked as anybody. I think he was disappointed in me, really. And I was disappointed in myself. And I think I upset a lot of the fans because from being, you know, you almost go from hero to zero. <clears throat> but I brought that on myself. You know, I nobody else to blame. You know, I take full responsibility for, for that incident and um, I still do today. But um, Harry was just shocked and he said, look, John, I've got to do something. He said, because I can't let this go. You know, anything else, you know, if the lads had gone out and caused a bit of havoc in a pub or something, he could let it go or he could swerve it or something. You know, he could talk to the manager. I don't know. I'm just making up instances but with this one, it, it was going to go big. Um, so he basically said, I've got to do something. He said, the people above me, the chief executives and the directors and the owners and the chairman and everybody else at West Ham, they would have expected the manager, you know, to find me and do the right thing, uh, which was which was absolutely fine. And uh, I got fine. But as I said, it uh, it just tainted our relationship for a bit. Mm. Um, Harry and I and hence that's, that's why he sold me but he tried to re-sign me at Portsmouth Harry Redknapp when I was at um, Celtic I, he made contact with, with my representatives and he wanted to bring me to Portsmouth at one stage so he couldn't have been uh, he couldn't have been that upset with me So obviously talk about um, your time with more positively at West Ham obviously you scored a lot of goals and that triggered a reported interest from Manchester United. I mean, how genuine was that interest and was it ever close to, to ever sort of materialising into a move? Well, it's in Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography, isn't it? That's where the interest has come from. So yeah. it's, 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 um, it's, it's interest, but um, I'm not too sure how far Sir Alex Ferguson saw took it, but it's in his book. It says that Brian Kidd came to watch me and then went back and recommended me to Manchester United. Mm. But they ended up paying 12 million, I think, for Dwight York 
from Aston Villa. What a mistake that was, by the way. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, um, it, it's in his book, and obviously Dwight and Coley and that they were fantastic together, weren't mm. they? Dwight York was a great player, big fan of Dwight Yorks and mm. these guys. Um, but no, it's in his book, I believe. I've never mm. seen it, but I'm sure it, it, the book I think is called "Managing My Life." I've been I've been told that quite a few times. And when Brian Kidd went back and said, "Look, you know, I've seen I've seen this centre forward at West Ham, John Hartson." But no, it didn't happen. But um, I wouldn't have minded gigs and Beckham putting a few crosses in for me. I think I'd have had about 40 goals that year, whatever it was. <laughs> I, was say, I think, I think as, as, as glad as I am, you didn't leave. That's a big thing. Really Mazda and, and Sinclair weren't bad, by the way. Yeah, yeah true, true. true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John, that season, we lost to your old club Arsenal twice in the quarterfinals of both cups. I mean, how frustrating was that for you personally? Because oh, especially oh, as oh. one was on penalties after your equaliser. It still wrangles with me now. I took the worst penalty I've ever took in my life. Um, in the FA Cup, I think it was, or the League Cup. And that, that, that is one of my big disappointments at West Ham. We, we were never able to get to a semi-final or a final, you know, and give the, give the fans that great day out, FA Cup final, and, uh, or an FA Cup semi-final, even at Villa Park or, or Hillsborough or whatever. Mm. Um, and that's disappointing because we met a decent Arsenal team, um, Overmars and Bergkamp, Wright and Elka, these guys, Adams, Keown, Bold, Winterburn, Dixon, Seaman in goal. So they're a fantastic team, uh, Vieira, of course. But we came close, you know, we came close on two occasions. And, and the second time is interestingly enough because I missed my penalty to go one the lap and I fluffed it really, I didn't hit it right. And I went to David Seaman's right and he almost just threw his cap on it, really. I didn't hit it, I didn't catch it. It was a poor penalty. Um, so that disappointed me. And then in, this, in the second one, the second quarter final, I scored my penalty in the shootout. Um, it went to penalties and I, I was one of the five nominated penalty takers and I scored my penalty. But I think, um, you know, we, we, we ended up missing. I can't remember now who missed um, for us. But again, you know, we went to two quarterfinals head-to-head with Arsenal and both at home. So we had a bit of an advantage at home as well, rather than going to Highbury, which was at the time. Uh, and we just weren't able to take advantage. And now that's a big disappointment. Disappointment because I was playing against my old roommate, Martin Keown. And um, I remember... Um, you know, rooming with Martin when I first arrived at Arsenal. He was a great uh, roommate and great teammate because he would say to me, right, John, talking about aggressive and physicality, they weren't much tougher than Martin, really. Um, Physical, quick, um, good defender, Aston Villa, Everton, England, had a great career. And Martin would basically say to me in the morning at the training ground at London Colney, he'd say, right, John, let's go and train as if it's a game today. And I'd look at him, he'd say, well, look, he says, you know, he backed himself. He says, you're not going to come up against anybody better, quicker, stronger, more physical than me. He said, so if we go out there today on the training ground and we train for real, like it's a game. um, He said, it's going to be fantastic. And he was spot on. It was great education for me because Martin was one of the best. He was one of the best centre-halves in the country. Um, A magnificent uh, centre-back, aggressive. Good defender, you know. He put his head, well, you know, in where, where the you know the the boots and the um, and the elbows are flying around, 
Um, and we used to knock seven bells out of each other. <laughs> and we used to have to be partied and everything. But, you know, but we did it for real. And, um, and it was really good. It was really good you know, for me. Because, as I said, if I could get the better of Martin, I could get the better of anybody. And uh, mm. that's how we used to train. And uh, it, was, it was brilliant. So I played against him twice, you know, during those quarterfinals. And I uh, wasn't quite able to get the better of him on them nights, unfortunately. So, so towards the end of your West Ham career, you kind of touched a, upon it a little bit earlier. So, sort of you, your form started to dip a bit, and the fans became a bit restless. Um, yeah. What, what, why do you think that was? What, what sort of caused that sort of sudden downturn? Really? I think I, I think I came back heavy, and um, the following season, I think I was sold in the January then. Um, and uh, we used to go running up at <coughs> Hainault Forest and um, I used to do some extra work with Frank Lampard Senior. Um, and maybe I just took, I don't know, I don't know what happened. Maybe I was just um, not quite prepared. Uh, I'd had a good summer, you know, on the back of 24 goals. I was, I was nominated for Young Player of the Year. I was nominated for football. Um, the players player of the year I was in the seniors category I think Dennis Bergkamp won it the year I won it and I think Robbie Fowler won the young players and I was nominated for both categories when you go to the um, when you go to the big hotel um, on Park Lane there for the awards um, and maybe I just let it get to my head I'd had such a great season 24 goals which was the most I, I got in, in a season and again I'd missed six or seven games so I don't know I don't know um, I can only blame myself and I, I, I couldn't really get fit um, Harry tried all different ways to, to do it um, and as I said it come the January as I mentioned earlier um, the club decided to cash in they probably saw um, a situation where you know De Canio would have come available at West Ham, uh, Mark Vivian Fowey at Man City, and Scott Minto, the Chelsea fullback. So literally, I was sold for seven point five million, and the next day Harry went out and spent every penny on three players. Um, and I always say it, and I don't get no pats on the back for it. But if I hadn't gone to Wimbledon. De Canio might never have come to West Ham. <laughs> very true, actually. Yeah, yeah. Very true. So yeah, no, um, it's, went uh... out and, and obviously signed them players. And De Canio has become a legend. Wonderful talent. What a great player and a great guy as well. I spent three nights interviewing Paolo a couple of months ago in the theatre. And he was fantastic. Really infectious. What, what a great man. Looked an absolute million dollars, he did. Um, and... Uh, as I said, uh, Harry went out and bought three good players. Mark Vivian Fowey, God rest his soul. Um, you know, tr tragic. You know the way he, um, the, the way you know he died. He's sadly no longer with us. Um, so that's what Harry was able to do. And I went to Wimbledon, um, and I enjoyed at Wimbledon. Unfortunately, we got relegated and had a short spell at Coventry. And then I had a dream move up to Scotland. I had five years at Celtic, scored over 100 goals. So, um, you know, that's what happened. But as I said, uh, 7.5 million, you know, they, they more than doubled their money. It was good value. And Harry's not daft. 
Harry's not daft. He probably felt I was a bit salt. Um, wasn't the player I was. Maybe the incidents I'd had, you know, with Al Berkovic and my form, my weight, um, you know, that led to, to me being sold. And, um, you know, as it happens, I couldn't believe Wimbledon probably paid that type of money for me in, in you know, in the at that particular situation. Probably neither could Harry, probably neither could most people. But they did. And uh, Joe Kinnear, Sam Haman were in charge. McArthur was the coach there. He'd obviously cleaned Mick's boots as a youngster at Luton, as an apprentice at Luton in the youth team. So I knew Mick very well, somebody I admired. And um, I ended up going to Wimbledon. So that's how that move came about, really. But as I said, I, I'd let myself down a bit. And, um, you know, I, really, I don't really know the answers for it, really. I just let myself go. But again, I was only, what, 22. So um, I had plenty of football left in me. And as I said earlier on, maybe if I tuned in and things might have been different, I might have gone on and, and played, you know, two or three hundred games for West Ham and scored over a hundred goals and, you know, and, and, and done the business there. But I did, I did the business for a short time and then it just sort of um, phased away then. Well, to be fair, from a career perspective, John, I think it's fair to say you did all right for yourself, mate, didn't you, moving forward? So there certainly no, shouldn't be any regrets on your part, I don't think. But when you moved to Wimbledon, there's a question I've got to ask you. There's a rumour flying round that you and Vinnie Jones once had a scrap outside a restaurant to prove it was the artist during your time at the Dons. Is that true? Well, what happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. <laughs> so is, is, that, is that your way of telling us you lost the fight? <laughs> I've never lost a fight in my life. <laughs> I think we've got our answer, X. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. No, but Vinny's, um, Vinny's a great guy. Vinny's a godfather of my daughter, Rebecca. Vinny's having right. a great time now over in LA. I'm so sorry that, you know, we, we saw, um, lost Tanya, you know, mm. a few months ago. Mm. Heartbreaking for Vinny. They were so close. They've been together so many years. And um, we had many nights out together, you know, when I was living uh, close by. Vinny was in, um, uh, Vinny was in, I can't think, well, I can't think of the name, well, near, near Hemel Hempstead somewhere. And um, my wife um, and, and, and Tanya were very close. So it was a terrible shame, really, for him. And my heart goes out, you know, for his uh, children and obviously losing his wife. So, um, you know, I made contact with him since and everything else and uh, we're absolutely fine, you know. As I said, we, we were really big mates at, at one time, but I think when, when Vinny moved over to LA and, you know, he started a new life for himself, making films and everything, I know we've got a house over there as well and I think he's he's settled and he's, he's got his place and and that's him. I think he's playing golf with Brad Pitt and, um, and these guys every day, so he's happy mm. enough. Obviously, like you said, you went to Coventry for 12 games and then quite soon after that you moved to Celtic. Did you ever, firstly, how did the move to Celtic come about so quickly after a short time at Coventry? And secondly, did you envisage you would be such a such a hit up there when you signed? Well, the move came about because I signed, uh, I went from Wimbledon to Coventry, Gordon Strachan uh, signed me there and uh, I scored six goals in 12 games mm. uh, at Coventry. So I finished the season, I got really fit under Gordon and uh, I was running every day, doing my sprint, staying on with Craig Bellamy afterwards to do extra in the gym. I knew Craig obviously from the national team. So mm. we teamed up together there as, as, as um, you know, as a strike partnership. 
and uh, we had um, we had Mustafa Haji, who was a great player, Moroccan uh, there as well. Oh, yeah, Roland Nielsen, great right back, Swedish right back. Paul Williams, Paul Telfer, Marcus Hall. Um, some really, really good players in the team. Magnus Hedman, Chris Kirkland in goals. And uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed there for six months. Unfortunately, we couldn't quite get enough points to keep us up. And I think Gordon Strachan was um, quite friendly with Martin O'Neill. O'Neill went to Middlesbrough with Steve McLaren. And, um, but um, Gordon said to me that, get yourself up to Scotland and join. He said, Celtic's a wonderful club. And I just thought, you know, I want to embrace something different, like maybe a little bit of a different culture, Glasgow, Scotland. And in the end, um, I saw it as a great move. And I, I came up to Glasgow. I now live in Edinburgh. I came up to Glasgow and, um, you know, managed to get over 100 goals for the football club in, in five years. Uh, I won three titles. The two titles I lost, I lost by a goal and a point. Very, very close to, to, to you know to wrapping up the five. Um, they were always great games, the old firm games, Celtic Rangers. I played in twenty odd of them. Played with two great managers, Martin O'Neill and um, and Gordon Strachan, and that, we had a brilliant team. We had a fantastic team. You know, Henrik Larsson, Paul Lambert, Stylian Petrov, Sutton, Lennon, Thompson. Um, you know, we had some really, really good players, some good international players as well. And we had, I had a wonderful time of it. I had a wonderful time in Glasgow. I, spent, I, signed, um, I left with a year on my contract, but I, I stayed in Glasgow for five years and um, you know, managed to get a brilliant rapport with the fans. And um, they're a massive, huge club, you know, absolutely ridiculous fan base. So Rangers, two massive clubs, by the way. And um, you know, delighted that I made that choice. And I came, I came to Scotland and I stayed for five years. Probably the, what it was, it was the longest I ever spent at one football club. I played 225 games for Celtic in that five years. I had two back operations in that particular time as well. Uh, sadly, I missed out on the UEFA Cup final in 2003 against Jose Mourinho's Porto. Um, but apart from that, it was brilliant. I love Glasgow. I'm now in Edinburgh. I love the Scottish people. My wife is Scottish. Um, and uh, it, it was fantastic. It was just a great experience playing for that great football club. Uh, John, as you know, that me and X also run the West Ham Way pre-match event. And we have done now for just over three years. We've had, I think, just over 50 events, many different guests. And, and I honestly don't believe that I've ever seen a guest get the attention of 300 pissed-up West Ham fans as much as you did that day when you was our guest and you told your story about when you got testicular cancer. Can you do the same on this podcast, more so to raise awareness, because I think you told it fantastically that day, about your specific story and what you went through and how you overcame that? Well, um, what happened was, was that um, <clears throat> I'd had a small lump on my testicle for um, a little bit of time. Um, and then gradually, as, as sort of the months and the years went by, the lump on my testicle got gradually got bigger. So I would say it turned into like a, a little nut-sized lump, into like a, um, into a baked bean size. And then eventually it was like a Maltesers lump on my testicle inside my scrotum. And um, I showed it to my wife one day. <clears throat> I basically said to Sarah, my wife, I said, look at this, Sarah. I said, it's been here for about three or four years. 
and she nearly collapsed. She says, what on earth is that? Why haven't you got that checked? And I said, well, I said, I don't know. I said, I, I don't know what to do. And she says, well, go to the doctor. I was playing for West Brom at the time with Brian Robson. And um, Brian obviously had signed me from, from Celtic. And uh, I told her a lie. I told her I'd been to the doctors and I hadn't because I had some sort of feeling that it was going to be bad. And um, eventually I started to get these mind-blowing headaches and um, feeling tired all the time, really, really tired almost falling asleep at the traffic lights. So they pull up to the traffic lights, <clears throat> put a lot of weight on around my neck and everything else on my jawline. And, and I eventually uh, went for a scan and I, you know, they told me that I had testicular cancer and it spread to my lungs and onto my brain. And um, so my message to people, to young lads are, you know, um, if you feel any lumps on your testicles, it's absolutely vital. It's imperative that you go to the doctor and you get a scan and you get them checked out because you don't want to go through all the, the chemotherapy and the, the two brain operations and that I went through, which, which I could have avoided if I'd gone early. The key is that you have a much better chance of surviving any illness, any operation, potential operations through early detection. Early detection is everything. Uh, if you let it spread, if you allow it to spread, then it can go all over your body, like myself, into my bones, onto my brain. And I was in, I was in serious trouble. I ended up having two emergency brain operations. I've got currently, I've got a shunt, um, which which sits down the side of my chest into my stomach. Um, it's been left with a few scars, and um, my, you know, my my, head, my head's got four or five scars, which which I don't mind. They're, they're battle scars, if you like, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, no, as I said, it was it was a serious situation that I got myself into through the um, you know the ignorance of my own health. Really, you've got to look after your health. You've got to look after yourself. I think women, when they when they got anything wrong with them, if they feel anything, they're straight to the doctors. They're straight to the nurses. Um, men, we brush it off, don't we? Yeah, it's very true. Uh, we're all right. It's a cold. I'll be all right tomorrow. Don't worry about that. You go out and play golf in the cold and the pissing down rain and you think, I'll be all right. You get soaking, you know, um, cut a paracetamol, you know, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. You know, blah, blah, blah. That's, that was my always, my, I always played with injuries and things like this. Um, I just got on with it. And I think men, men generally, you know, are like that. Some men anyway was. So, you know, you have to go and get these things looked at, um, get an expert's opinion on them. And if, I, if I'd done that, if I'd done that, I wouldn't have had, uh, it wouldn't have spread to my brain. It wouldn't have spread to my lungs. And I ended up having two lung operations, as I said. Um, two, I spent six weeks in hospital, 67, 68 sessions of chemotherapy. Jesus Christ. And, um, and my eyes were rolling on the slab at one stage. You know, I was, I was gone. I was gone. I was in, I was in desperate trouble. And through the grace of God, um, you know, and a little bit of luck, I was able to come through that. Um, you know, so I don't know how I came through it. I, I can't explain that. I really don't know. But um, I am, severe, you know, ever so grateful and appreciative that I was able to stay here. I was able to stay around to watch my kids, you know, get older and do what all fathers want to do, you know. And, um, you know, and be a good dad and, and raise your children the, the, 
you know, the way I was raised. So I was able to do that. And as I said, I, I'm very blessed and uh, life is good now. I'm healthy, um, you know, and um, I'm on it now. Everything's good, but it was, it was a big, big scare at the time. Yeah, good luck to you, John. Thanks for sharing that with us, mate. I really All appreciate right, that. You're welcome. And I think um, I think it's really important as well. But um, no, obviously, speak on behalf of everyone, John, that we're um, we're pleased that you pulled through, mate. And like I say, thanks for sharing your story, pal. Very much appreciated on that. That's uh, my pleasure, boys. It's great to be on, and uh, I enjoyed the day down at Lincolnstone as well when I came and met the fans that afternoon. It was a great, great afternoon. Yeah, it yeah, was. No, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I really that. enjoyed that. I'd <laughs> love to come down again. I'd love to come down again. You know, one time. Yeah, oh, yeah we'll, de we'll definitely do that. Um, it was really good, like you said, Dave said earlier, you really held the audience. And it, it seems to be that you've obviously got this fighting instinct because I didn't know about this. It's only because I follow you on Twitter. But it seems like you've uh, you had another accident, well, another incident, should I say, with your eyes. Like, it's, it's a good job you've got a tough head, mate. <laughs> like, what, what happened well, with the golf buggy? <laughs> oh, well, two years ago, two years ago, I. Um, I went for a game of golf, like like I do, like everybody does. Well, yeah. we haven't been play for a few months, but um, they're back open now anyway, so I uh, might get back on the golf course sooner rather than later, because I do like my golf. Um, so I went for a game of golf two years ago, June the 6th, which is almost, yeah, just over two years to the day. Yeah. And we get in a buggy, and the gentleman that was driving the buggy I've since said that he's never drove a buggy before in his life. <laughs> oh, my gosh. baby told me that morning. Yeah. <laughs> Ten past nine in the morning. So don't ask me, was I drunk or if I had a drink? Or <laughs> like part of the first hall? Because none of that happened, by the way. <laughs> so we go to the first hall and we miss, he misses the first exit to get onto the first tee. So he decides to go over the brow of a hill and go the tiger line straight over the thing to meet you know, just to get back on. Didn't turn around and go back on the path. And as we go along the hill, there's a, there's a tree, there's a big tree there about 15 metres away. And we're heading towards the tree. And I'm a passenger. I'm a passenger. I'm getting my balls all organised, my tea, getting my glove on and everything else, as you do, you know, getting my pencil ready, just about to do the card. So the next thing I've looked up, and now we're about five metres from this tree. And I say, I say to the driver, I say, look, break, break. There's a, there's a tree there, break, break. And as he's gone to break, he's hit the wrong pedal. He's hit the, he's hit the um, accelerator. And we sped up. We sped up into this tree about, I don't know, 12, 10 miles an hour, however fast buggies go. But we full throttle. And he's gone to it, the, the brake, but he's, he's made a mistake. Uh, and then we just, bang, hit the tree in the buggy. So my head came forward, there's glass everywhere, the wheels are 20 foot up in the air, uh, lucky to be alive. Um, yeah. And as I, the impact of hitting the tree, uh, my head came forward and I hit the perspex sort of metal, sorry, I hit the metal bar that keeps the glass in the front, you know, the, the, the plastic glass along the front. Mm. Oh, I, hit, I hit the side of that, which is the two metal bits that keep in the glass. And my head just split. I put my head down. Luckily, I put my head down. If I'd have been face on, it's getting me across my face. You can have my eye out. You can have anything. Mm. And it basically just split my head open like a tomato um, with the impact. Bang, hitting the tree. There's more tree underground, by the way, than what's above ground. Mm. But the tree ain't moving. You hit a wall, or if you hit a tree, that, that's it. You know, they're not moving. 
and um, and I've split my head on from front to back, 48 stitches. I'm rushed to plastic surgery um, in Edinburgh, and um, they stitched me up. And uh, you know, I was very, very lucky again uh, not to have lost an eye or not to have died. Or, and you know, there's more blood on your head than anywhere else on your body. Yeah. So I was totally covered in blood. My, my T-shirt, you could have rinsed my T-shirt out. They stole all my legs, my trainers, everything. And um, they stitched me up. And uh, actually, you know, the scarring has, has healed really, really well. But it's just something that, you know, I could have done without really. <laughs> I would have had the two brain operations and everything. <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, these things are there to test you. Unfortunately, you know, they, they, they happen sometimes when you very least expect them to happen, these you know, these horrendous sort of um, incidents, trauma, uh, you know, so you just hope that, you know, you don't get involved in too many of them, you know, but mm. they happen to everybody every day. There's people who go through a lot worse, um, but they happen when you very least expect them to happen. You know, I've been playing golf for 30 years and I've not got a scratch. Mm. So I take, a, you know, I go up for the game of golf, and bang, half an hour later, I'm being rushed to hospital with, with, with my head sliced open like a, like a bloody beetroot, you know? Mm. But there we are, boys. That's that story. And I'm still here to fight another day. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, make sure, I'll make sure next time I take a buggy, I'll be driving it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's don't amazing. Don't ask me what was my score on the first hole because I never <laughs> get a bloody tee shot. That's what disappoints me more. I couldn't put it down the middle of the bleeding fairway. You know? <laughs> you've certainly been through the walls, mate, that's for sure. Um, oh, and you've certainly played with some good players, at West Ham especially. If mm. I was to say to you, give me a handful of who you believe were the best players you played with at West Ham. Who comes at West Ham, right. At West Ham... I would have to say players like, um, you're all very good players, but if I say Rio, of course, you know, world-class. Yeah. World-class, and I don't say that about too many people. I think young Frank, you know, went on to become a player that Chelsea's leading goal scorer, an unbelievable goals record. I wasn't quite sure that Frank at West Ham would go on to be the player that he eventually did. I don't think many people did think that. Mm. But it's gone on to, you know, to forge an incredible um, goals record. He was a goal-scoring midfield player. Um, so I have to put Frank Lampard in there. Um, Rio, John Moncure was excellent. John could take it with his left foot. He could take it with his right foot. I've not played with many better footballers than Ian Bishop. Bish was class. Um, kept the ball, just loved passing. Ari Redknapp absolutely loved Bish. Um, he was Ari's type of player, wasn't he? You know, mm. Ari knew the blueprint at West Ham, having played there, having managed there. He knew that the crowd wanted to be entertained. He knew that, um, he, you know, West Ham used to love watching good footballers. You look at players like Alan Devonshire, Trevor Bucking, Martin Peters over the years, God rest his soul. Um, you know, other players as well, you know, footballers. Um, Ian Wright came to the club. Uh, he, he wasn't the Ian Wright I played with at West Ham, but he was still lively, still scored some good goals for West Ham. 
And of course, you know, Kits, Dixie, I, I could go on. You know, Lomi, I think, was a good captain. Stevie Lomas was a good leader. Um, there was plenty boys. Trevor Sinclair was a joy to play with Trevor. He was magnificent at QPR, Man City, England, West Ham. Um, he was just, Trev was just so reliable. You know, Harry could just pick him and he was a 7-8 every weekend. And the guy ever saw Trevor have a bad game. Mm. And he just got his head down. He full of trickery, trying to beat the fullback, get a crossing. You know, and I think it helped me that he'd, he'd worked with Les Ferdinand at QPR because... You know, Trev was a, a centre forwards winger, if you like. He, he used to he used to go onto a pitch thinking that if I can make my centre forward a goal today, I've done my job. And that's what a winger's job is to make your centre forward a goal. Uh, that's ultimately why they're there. All right, they can cut in on the wrong foot once every three years and score a world beating goal from 40 yards, but you get one of them a career. If you're a winger, I'm saying to my winger, you make your centre forward a goal for me today, son, and you've done your job. Yeah. And that's what wingers are for, so to make centre-forwards goals. You know, um, Al Berkovic was a terrific footballer. Again, made a lot of my goals, great balance. He went on to sit, play for Celtic. Harry took him to Portsmouth. So I could go on and on, lads, really. But, um, you know, West Ham are great players over the years, haven't they? They have. They absolutely have. How would you want to be remembered by West Ham fans, John? I just think somebody who, who was like them, you know, born and born and brought up um, like a lot of people, a lot of football supporters on a council estate. Somebody who was blessed um, that I made it as a professional footballer, played for some of the biggest clubs in the country, um, represented my own uh, country, um, Wales. Somebody very proud uh, and just honest. I, you know, I believe I, I'm honest. I, I try to tell it as it is. I don't bullshit. I, I I talk to people as 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 I'm, you know. I would talk to a tramp off the street. I give him ten pounds. Somebody who's homeless. Somebody I just give him ten pound. Go and buy a cup of coffee, you know. And I I would speak to Rio Ferdinand next week in the same tone. That that's that's what I'm like. That's what my dad's like. That's what all my friends are like. I'm from a council estate in Swansea. Um, you know, it, it it's not for shrinking violets where I was brought up. But, you know, you just get on with it and, um, you know, and you get your respect through the way that you are, really. Um, mm, you don't have mm. to be a tough guy. You don't have to do this. You don't have to prove anything. Just be yourself. Just be a nice guy. Be a gentleman and you get people's respect. John, it's always a pleasure talking to you, mate. And we really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on, pal. My pleasure, boys. All the best. And good luck to West Ham this season as well. And David Moyes. X is the man in the know. Okay, mate, what have you got for us this week? Right, so in the week I obviously tweeted that the club were going to play two friendlies. Um, I broke the news that we're playing QPR today and that we're playing Crystal Palace on Saturday as part of our preparation to... um, yeah, ready for the Wolves game. So obviously they played the game today against QPR and the score was 4-1 to West Ham um, as the goal scorers. So it's a funny thing because the club want to keep this basically quiet. What's gone on in these matches, particularly the formation and particularly 
like, you know, which players played in what position. I mean, I think most players actually featured at some point in this game. So, but obviously certain formations were tried out, certain players were playing certain positions, certain tactics were used. So the club don't really want to give it away. I mean, I have heard a bit about what happened, but I'm not going to say right now because I think if the club have got I've got a reason to not release it that I'm not going to. But I think also in terms of the score, they wanted to sort of, they're not publishing it themselves because they've kind of said to the other clubs, like, you know, it will be sort of kept behind closed doors, you know, it's a friendly, just using it for fitness. And obviously if West Ham was to have got battered, like, 8-0 today or something, say, they wouldn't have wanted that to come out. So I think they've got a mutual agreement. Because I noticed that QPR have mentioned the game, but they haven't actually mentioned the score. But I am reliably told by um, numerous people um, that the score was 4-1 to West Ham. I believe the goal scorers were Sebastian Allaire, Mikel Antonio, um, Ajeti, and Fornells, although I'm not entirely sure on Fornells, but I'm pretty sure on the first three. Um, and... Hugel did play for QPR. He finally got to explain what it was like going out to the bubbles. Although it's <laughs> unconfirmed whether there was actually any bubbles. Um, I very much doubt there was, to be fair. So, uh, it's not so meant think, to be, uh, is it? I, mean, I, don't, I think, it, yeah, I'd imagine there wasn't because. Uh, I mean, to be fair, who would they be putting them on for other than Jordan Eagle? There, no, there was no one else there, really. So I doubt anybody else is as interested as he. He, he announced he was, <laughs> and uh, that guy, Eze, I think it's pronounced for QPR, player yeah. that been interested in, he did play the game as well, apparently, and he apparently played really, really well. I mean, obviously, they lost 4-1, but he did still stand out as a really good player. Now, in terms of transfers, we're not close to signing anyone at this point, because, as I've said, like, repeatedly, since... Pretty much we went into lockdown. We don't know what division we're going to be in yet, so we can't plan for who we're going to sign without knowing that. So the club have obviously looked at possibilities, you know, players that they could possibly look at um, for the Premier League, players that could probably look at the Championship, players that maybe could be applicable for both. But um, and they're, they're not going to have concrete targets until they know the actual situation with the, the vision. Um, Jordan Hugel, so much as he has extended his loan with QPR now, because obviously the championship se- uh, season, like the Premier League, is going to resume now. So technically, all the players would have finished um, their loan spells by now, but they've been extended. Um, so, uh, same as Suchek at West Ham as well. Um, so, the, so Hugo's extended his loan at QPR. Um, in, in terms of injuries, the only two players, and again, it's something that I've reported before that have knocks, are Cresswell. Um, but he definitely played a part today, so he must be, I think he's able to play, but he can't sort of train the full time. And Ogbonna, so Cresswell and Ogbonna are the two Two kind of doubts. I think Moyes is hopeful that for the Wolves game all will be fit, but at the moment it's it's those two. Jack Wilshire played, um, you know, which was surprise a few people, and uh, most of the other um, uh, players played at some part of the, of the game. Um, players that didn't play were players that have been out on loan that have returned to the club. Um, so players like Coventry, uh, Nathan Trotz, Dan Kemp, and numerous others that are out on loan. They're now technically back at West Ham because their seasons have finished. You know, Connor Coventry was at Lincoln. That division now has decided to... Um, wrap up and go straight to the playoffs, same with League Two. So all of those players are now back at West Ham, but there's um, 
because of this is an unprecedented situation that it's not been confirmed whether they could actually feature for West Ham this season or not. So they're still kind of waiting for that information. You know, I've heard good things about how well they've been training away from, you know, the, like, since they've been in lockdown, you know, apparently Connor Coventry looks like a different player in terms of his physique. He's really worked out. Dan Kemp. No, has uh, the same. Um, they've all sort of really trying to establish themselves in the team this year, so they've been working hard over over the break. Um, people have questioned why Kevin Nolan hasn't appeared in any of the kind of photos. And I did tweet about this, um, so it's not anything that I haven't tweeted, but he is still at the club. He is still working there, but there's two reasons why you may not have seen him. Firstly, he's working with the players that are fringe players and academy players um, because, you know, they've, they've got reduced staffing at the moment. So, for example, you know, Kevin Keane and Steve Potts and Mark Phillips and the sort of academy coaches haven't been into haven't been into um, training since this happened because, as probably all the listeners know, you've got to reduce your um, work your workforce during this period of time so it's the same as West Ham so obviously the coaches are, there's less of them so they have different roles and it also applies to the first team you can't have too many coaches in the same place so obviously you've got boys you've got Irvine so then the others need to to do things elsewhere, but they are still technically, well, not technically, they are West Ham employees, they're just doing um, slightly different roles. Uh, good news today that a number of young um, academy players signed new deals. That's um, Keenan Apaya, um, there's Harrison Ashby, who's a promising right back, he's a, he's a good lad, Harrison, um, Sam Kager, um, Dan Chesters, he's meant to have a really big future ahead of him. He's someone, you know, I like to identify an academy player that you look out for. I've already said about Amadou Diallo, which um, still hasn't quite burst on yet, but his he's name's out there. But Dan Chesters is another who, in a few years' time, could be knocking on the door of the first team. Um, Daniel Ginadu and Joshua Okocha are... Um, uh, players that have also signed new deals. Uh, people are asking me about the kit. I believe that the kit is actually being shown to the players um, in the, in the, within the next couple of weeks um, or sooner. So it will be soon that I'm probably going to get a sneak peek. So as soon as I do, um, not because it's gone to the players, it won't be through them, but it will be through my Source at Umbro. Um, I'll feel probably be able to see what those look like. Um, the Jeremy and Gakia situation. Uh, you've got your name into quite a few uh, um, articles recently on your opinions on it. But um, just to sort of confirm, he has pretty much told the club he no longer wants to play for us. Um, that's came down to disputes over his contract, as, as we've talked about, particularly on last week's show. There's a difference, quite a significant difference, between the club's valuation of what he should get and what Ngaki's uh, agent, particularly in values now. You can look at it either way. Obviously, we've heard your opinion, but Ngakia was offered a increment of increases per game. So, like an incentive-based thing. So, if he played, I think the basic wage was something like three or something like five grand, I think. I don't know the exact figures, so I'm just throwing vague ones out there. Five grand plus if he played like 
10 games, it would go up to this amount. If you pay 20, it would go up to this amount. If you pay 30, it would go up to this amount and so on. So he was offered a decent deal in that respect. But then on the flip side, West Ham are now offering to extend Zabaleta's contracts until the end of the season. Um, what, the new season and his contract. I mean, Zavaleta is on a substantial wage. Again, I don't like to say exact figures, but he's on over 50 grand a week. So if you think if he's going to play for another, I don't know, let's say another two uh, months or another eight weeks at 50 grand, you know, that's a, that's a lot of money that could have gone to Ngakia's contract, for example. Um, I mm. do believe there's a possibility that Ngakia may have been, um, I forget what I say here, uh, informed of other clubs' interests, shall we say. So uh, there may be other clubs that have already kind of realised his situation, said to him, look, You'd be, a, you'd be put knocking on the first team door here because what you have to remember at West Ham, he was almost released at West Ham before he played those games for us. So there's always been doubts over whether he was mentally equipped to play in the Premier League. Um, and Ben Johnson was ahead of him in the reckoning. Um, so what he, he probably hasn't been promised games at West Ham, which is why he also probably doesn't want to accept a deal which is based upon playing games and what's probably been told to him. I have heard that Crystal Palace and Spurs amongst a number of clubs have shown some interest. What's that? So let's take Crystal Palace. What they've probably said to him is, you know, we will make you first, second choice and you will play this amount of games. Someone's probably said that to him. I think it's not completely over yet. I think there's still a chance we could go back one more time. But the fact that he's not, he's a group, he's uh, basically said he's not going to pay beyond his current contract, which is the 30th of June, I think. He's got to dramatically change his stance in in that time. Um, so that, that that's kind of the situation as it is with him. Um, it's a sad state of affairs. It's still, I think we were in a bit of a, what's the word, um, legacy of Reese Oxford. I think the club were burnt by that, so to speak, and so they don't want to make the same mistake again. But then you could argue on the flip side, if they offer him this amount of money, you know, do they have to offer Coventry that amount of money? Do they have to offer Trot that amount of I have to offer any kind of academy player that gets anywhere near, you know, four games for a first team. That's suddenly on twenty grand a week. You know, it's, it is a difficult situation for the club to be in, um, because you like you've argued, you could argue that um, he should get a full-time contract, um, like a, like he deserves, because he's going to be a you know a strong first team player. But then there's the other argument: do you, after four games, are you going to do that to everyone? So I'm kind of sitting on the fence with this one a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've been very vocal about this situation. Um, you know, I don't want to repeat myself because I think we went into a lot of depth last week. So for those that want more of an in-depth look at what we think, then look at last week's podcast. And I've obviously made my feelings known on Twitter as well. But, you know, to put it in a nutshell, I think if he's looking for 20, 30, 40 grand a week basic, I'd be on the side of those that are back in the club. He's not, he's looking for under half of that. And um, I just think, yeah, okay, it's come at an unfortunate time of negotiations where his contract has come to an end in the middle of a pandemic. The one thing that I do think is indefensible, in my opinion, is the fact that he won't extend his contract till the end of the season and put these conversations on ice. That's one thing that does disappoint me because I think he should do that. That aside, I think if you're talking about, you know, let's be honest, around eight grand a week for a Premier League player, 
who has shown promise, who, you know, is potentially going to keep Fredericks out of the side, who is potentially, even if he doesn't, going to be number two when Zabaleta retires. £8,000 a week. I mean, you know, you let him go. It's supposed to be the academy of football, you know, and you've got a promising youngster coming through here and he's not asking for big money. He's saying, I'll commit to you if you commit to me. I just want £8,000 a week. There are, there are teams struggling in the championship that have players on more than that. And this is a kid who we could potentially pin down for a long-term deal and we're going to let him walk away. And sure as shit, in true West Ham fashion, I bet he does walk away, probably goes to a Crystal Palace and then goes on to become a great player. And I just think, you know, when you look at the situation, you look at risk and gamble and you look at Jeremy Agaki and you think, okay, if he's asking for 20 grand a week, how much is that a gamble financially for the football club? That's a fair conversation. When you're talking £8,000, it's, it's, it's nothing, it's so for change in this day and age. And I'm just really disappointed. I'm disappointed that we couldn't get the deal done. And now, you know, we're potentially going to go to market and spend £15 million and fifty grand on, you know, another Ryan Fredericks, for example, who might not be as good. And it's just, it, it just seems crazy to me. And it's interesting because it sparks a debate about this. And from what I've seen on Twitter, it really does seem 50-50. It seems to split. 50% are back in the club, 50% are back in Jeremy. But I know where, where, um, where I stand on this. Well, as I said earlier, I'm really kind of in the middle because I do believe if you... I do agree with what you're saying. That seems stupid to potentially throw away a right back that could be our right back for, you know, what is he, 20, I think, off the top of my head. You know, it could be our right back for the next, say, 13, 14 years. Um, so it does seem silly to throw him away over you know, what's probably three or four grand extra a week, say. Um, but, then, but then there is that argument. You know, he's played four games. You know, Alexander Silva has probably featured that many times. Coventry probably has, Holland probably has. Um, you know, do they all need to get that sort of pay rise? Does it set a precedent that you're going to have to do this for everybody? Yeah, but, but why, why does it always have to be a generic conversation with these players? You've got to look at each individual player on merit. And that's why I think we run the risk of slipping into the Reese Oxford's conversation. Reese Oxford's name should never be mentioned when it comes to contractual negotiations with players. Yes, we got our fingers burnt with that. Yes, we made a mistake. He turned out to be a wrong one, got manipulated by his agent, and we fucked him off. That's history. That's done. Now let's look at the next player. Look at his mentality. Look at his attitude. Look at what he's, he's already given. Look at what um, his potential is for the football club. And that's how you've got to judge everyone individually. No, Conor Coventry shouldn't be put on an eight grand a week uh, pay rise because, number one, the club's hand hasn't been forced in the sense that Coventry's contract isn't up here and now, so we don't have to look at it. And all right, he might have played sporadic games here and there. I couldn't even tell you what games they were. I'm pretty sure some of them were irrelevant cup games. You know, Jeremy Ngakia has come in, I think three of the four games he had were against two of the best teams in the world. And, um, and on one of those games, he looked like our best player. He has come in, he's performed, he's done really well. I like him going forward as much as I like him defensively. And he's so young, but he looks so composed. And that's why I'm quite surprised to hear that his um, mentality was questioned by the academy coaches before going into the first team. But ultimately, he did go into the first team. And if he has bunny hopped over Ben Johnson, well, I'm sorry, tough Ben Johnson, because Jeremy Ngaki has earned the right to get that call up. And he's grabbed that opportunity with both hands. Now, we're... We're saying, yes, he's only played four games and, all right, he, we can't say he's an absolute well-beater because this is over a period of a season or two. But you've got to look at it in the unfortunate timing that it is. 
and look at this kid and say, is he, based on what we know about him, based on what he's given, based on the finances that we're probably going to have to go to market to buy another right back to replace Abeletta, maybe even Fredericks, is he worth the gamble of £8,000 a week? And I think for a Premier League club playing in the best league in the fucking world that is worth billions of pounds, this industry, to not give this kid £8,000 a week is criminal. That's my opinion. I, I do agree with you. And I'm only sort of playing devil's advocate here a little bit. But um, what would you say? If I said to you that Dean Garner earns less than Ngakia, or would learn less than Ngakia, but Ngakia got eight grand a week. And then Dean Garner's played, what, 20-odd times for West Ham. He's now gone to West Brom and pretty much proven himself in the championship. When he comes back to West Ham, say, in the summer, he would be on... I don't know the exact figures, but let's just say Jeremy did get eight grand and he, let's just say he's on, what, four grand less, maybe fuck three grand less. Is that fair? Do you then have to get Dean Garner a new contract? I mean... Well, well, I think, well, do you know what? I think it's as simple as saying who is more important to West Ham at this moment in time. I think Jeremy and Gakia is. You've got... Uh, Zabalette is going to retire. Ryan Fredericks, you could argue, is injury prone potentially and has not been the greatest performer over that period of time so if you yeah. remove those two players who are you left with you're left with Jeremy Ngakia and the risk of Ben Johnson now Ben Johnson might come through and play 14 fantastic games and then start knocking on the door for a contract we haven't seen that yet so we're left with Jeremy Ngakia and that's my first um, argument the second argument is Dean Garner has shown glimpses but if he had performed at the level that Jeremy Ngakia had performed in that first team, he wouldn't be going out on loan. So he's gone out on loan to the Championship because for this season, we deemed that we didn't need Dean Garner. Because if we needed him, he wouldn't be going anywhere and he'd have been in the squad and he'd be in first-team contention. So until he shows his importance to the team and the squad in the same way that Jeremy Ngakia has in this short time, then no, I don't think he should be on the same amount of money. But if he comes back, and his contract is up in two months' time, and he has eight fantastic games for West Ham in the first team, fucking right, you should give him eight grand a week. Mm, it's eight yeah. grand a week. It's fuck all. Yeah, I know. I know you. And you do make a good point, man. As I say, just for the benefit of the show, I am kind of arguing the other side. Absolutely. But, um, and, and, know, there is, and there is another side, and it's a powerful another side, because it's, you're not talking about 5% of people that are having this argument. It's 50-50. And do you know what? Don't get me wrong. I understand where a lot of people are coming from. I, you know, I understand their argument. But what I will say is there seem to be a lot of people having this argument on Twitter, from what I can see, that believe Jeremy Ngakia is knocking on the door for a 20 grand a week basic. Mm. Now, if that was true, I'd be a lot less lenient on this argument. But mm. that's, that, that's, not, well, that's not accurate information, is it? Well, the figures have never really been directly. Well, as far I don't think that twenty grand has ever been directly confirmed by anyone. It was it was run by like it was the Guardian or the Daily Mail, one of those papers that ran that figure. I don't I don't know if that figure has actually ever really had any real substance to it. Um, but I know that he wasn't asking for that higher figure. I know that because. I've heard, you know, from people very close to him. Um, but then with bonuses and so on, it would go up to that much. I mean, I think off the top of my head, and I could be wrong on this, but I think roughly if a player plays for West Ham's first team, I think they get roughly a 10 grand performance bonus anyway. And I think if you're on the subs bench, you get five grand 
payment. And even if you don't come on, if you're just on the subs bench, you get five grand. Um, and if you come on, it's like 7,500 or something like that. But you get bonuses. And then obviously, if you contribute to certain things for your position, there's bonuses there as well. Um, and so I do think Ingakia's wages, if you add in bonuses, would be quite substantial. Um, but and it would all be based on playing, though. And, and just let me make one other, what I think is a really important point. When you say about, and you're not the only one to have said this as well. Other people have come at me with this and said, you know, if you do this for Jeremy, are you going to have to do this for everyone? Well, I've already made the point of, well, everyone else at under 23 level hasn't proved themselves in any capacity, in my opinion, like Jeremy has in that small space of time. That was the first argument. The second argument is, let me flip that to the senior team, to senior pros. How long has Mark Noble been at this football club? And what is he on a week? Um, well, he's been there about 16 years, hasn't he? And I reckon he's on about 50 grand, roughly 50, 60 grand. Right. So like now, that. what does Mark Noble think when Carlos fucking Sanchez walks through the door on 70 grand a week and doesn't kick a ball for West Ham? Now, I'm not being yeah. funny. You don't see Mark bitching, putting in transfer requests and fucking, you know, everyone on social media storming saying, well, if Carlos has been signed for that, then Mark's got to have a 20 grand increase. It doesn't happen. It only seems to crop up with the Jeremy and Gakia discussion. So it proves my point, I believe, that everyone has to be judged on individual merit. It's like in the workplace. There are people that are on 10 grand less than me in my job. There are people on 10 grand more. But there's justifiable reasons for that. You can't say to someone who, you know, is on 10 grand less than me, right, we're now going to put you up to 20 grand more, even though you're not performing or this, that and the other. Or likewise, the top performer, we're going to bring your salary down. A club has a salary budget and it's up to them who they allocate that salary budget to. Every club is in the same boat and it all comes down to what you think a player's worth. And this is my point entirely. Forget all the politics around it. My problem with West Ham is that they see Jeremy Ngakia as an eight grand gamble too much. And that, for me, is crazy. If we're talking 30, 40, 50 grand, I, I get it. Let him walk. But for an £8,000 player a week in the Premier League, to not give him that deal is just fucking crazy. And if we're yeah. doing that on the back of being burnt by Reese Oxford, and that is going to be our strategy moving forward now, that's a big mistake. And we'll, we'll have talent walking out this club left, right and centre if we're going to do that. Well, I think we will. And I think there's no surprise that a number of players that have a lot of potential are already talking about moving on. Because um, I think there is a knock-on effect. Because, but you, again, there's two arguments. Because if you've got a, a young lad that's coming through the academy, is he going to think, right, basically, all I've got to do here, if I look at Reese Oxford, if I look at Jeremy Gakia, all I've got to do is play four good games, and then I'm knocking on that door and I'm saying, right, I want eight, ten, twelve, whatever, grand a week. Whereas we're now already saying to those players, that's not going to happen. This is what we're paying for, young players. Know your limit. So you could argue a positive either way because you could argue that's good because it sets your kind of your strategy out early on so that other players won't think, oh, okay, I'm going to push up my luck after four games. And then on the flip side, yeah, a player. A player that's got a lot of potential is probably going to turn around and say, God, the club are that tight. I'm not going to make any money here anyway. I might as well leave anyway. So, yeah, but so again, like, yeah, but again, though, again, I don't think that's relevant because... You know, players are not going to look at it and say, right, Jeremy's blagged himself an eight grand a week contract after playing just four games. The reason he's looking for that is because as luck would have it, his contract is up. 
Now, how many youth players, as it stands, are going to play four games and have their contracts expire at this time? Maybe there will be. And if they're in the same situation, then they can go to the football club and ask for that. You know, and if they've performed at that level over that four-game period, then that's their prerogative. But the fact of the matter is, realistically, some of these under-23 players that are coming through are going to be playing four games, eight games, 12 games, 15 games. Whatever amount of games it will be, they will already be in a contract. And if they go to the board and say, I've had four great games, but I'm on a two-year deal, but I want an increase, the board will tell them to fuck off because they've got that control. But this kind of strange situation that we found ourselves in the players got the control and it's a case of what do the football club want to do about it he's asking for eight grand a week it's not taking the piss in my opinion do we give it to him or not do we take a punt on this kid actually turning into a great player which he's already showed us glimpses of being is eight grand worth that punt and you know what why not have that punt pay him eight grand a week and if it doesn't work out after a year, because he's so young, his resale value, even if he's worth a million pound, 1.5 million, and we sell him for that, which is pittance in this day and age, we've got those wages back and we go again. Mm. You know, it's not, yeah. like it's not like we're having this conversation over a 36-year-old. It's not like we're thinking, well, Zabba wants another 50 grand. Shall we give it to him? Because if mm. it does go tits up, it, you're going to get nothing for him. Whereas Jeremy, worst case scenario, and it don't work, send him to a championship club, get all your money back. And you've got that squad player for the rest of the season. Who, by the way, is a squad player that towards the end of last season was one of our best players. But we're going to let yeah. him walk out the fucking door over eight grand a week. It's madness. Yeah. For me, it's madness. But yeah. there you go. It's always well, madness at West Ham, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> well, nothing's ever plain sailing, is it? I mean, I guess for the, bit, the benefit of our podcast, that's quite handy because it always gives us something to talk about. <laughs> um, for, yeah. the, for, the, for the sanity of West Ham fans, it's not great, is it? I mean, so, but like I said on last week's show, I've actually kind of enjoyed there not being that much to talk about with West Ham because I feel like it's my, whilst the world is in a bit of a crap place at the moment, at least I wasn't having to also worry about West Ham, but now, lo and behold, up they rock, just to spice, yeah. the, spice things up even more and uh, see if we can really make 2020 a crap year. <laughs> you know, if, if, if West Ham end up getting relegated after all of this, jeez, <laughs> it's not been good considering, oh considering Australia uh, for us and Los Angeles is also possibly Ibiza. I know. It's just fallen by the wayside. Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> mate. Really it has been depressing. It really has. I mean, I only really go on Twitter just to to browse through West Ham related stuff, and I don't, I don't really, I haven't really had too much to say. Typically on Twitter, I only say something if I feel I've got something to say, and then every now and then I'll, I'll scroll through the timeline. But you know, all this shit that's going on, all the politics and everything that goes with it, I, I try my best to avoid it. I don't look at any news channels, don't read any newspapers. I just find it so fucking depressing. It's unbelievable. And then, like you say. At the height of that, you've got West Ham coming back, which honestly, hand on heart, I'm a bit gutted about because I thought that was our get-out-of-jail-free card um, to end what was a shit season for us with yeah. the season cancelling. But they haven't done it, so time will tell. 
Oh, that's it. It's exactly the same as me. I was quite relieved. I thought, yeah, we'll get void this season. Forget it happens. <laughs> Start again. But yeah, we've now got the uh, stress of a relegation battle to, to go with. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Can't do a bit about it, can we? So, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And then it's back to normal for the podcast in two weeks' time when we um, we reflect on the game that we've just watched and please God, we get off to a good start against Wolves because I don't mm. think there's such a thing as an easy game now to the end of the season. So it's end of the chair stuff for us, I think, mate. 100% of the thing is, mate, you just don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you just no. don't know what, what, what you know, fitness levels certain players and teams are going to be at. You don't know how much of a difference not only a crowd is going to make to certain players or teams. I think it really does unsettle what is what like what form and what um, ability is of football teams, you know, like certain teams thrive upon their home atmosphere, really giving them that extra extra level. You know, you, you think of someone like Wolves, for example, you know, they've got great crowd, Norwich and people underestimate how good their home crowd is, you know, without that support behind them, do they just turn like a lot worse, you know, like mm. will Liverpool, Liverpool be the same? Will their superstars turn up with no one there to watch them? Mm. Will play? Will the players dive as much? Because you know, in the heart of a game, with a uh, with um, when passions running and the crowd are influencing things and that, you know, players do different things. But when there's no one there making any noise, are you, are you gonna? You know, you take it's almost like a sort of friendly game in a way isn't it in some respects so mm, yeah. yeah it's going to be interesting to see see what happens really and just like you said just let's just hope we stay up and then we can just put an end to all of this and then um yeah hopefully the world will restore itself to some kind of normality and then um yeah we can go back together i mean mate you gotta think you and i since we've known each other we've pretty much seen each other twice a week for yeah Three or four years, mate. I yeah. haven't seen you for since March now, whatever it was. So yeah. I know, I know. I mean, I, I know. Obviously, you've, you've got my picture on your bedside table, which is nice. It's not, it's not enough. It's, it's, it's not the real thing, is it? That's the problem. No. Even when I put it above, like on the ceiling, so when I wake <laughs> up and I look up and see it, it just hasn't <laughs> quite hit the right spot, unfortunately. Story <laughs> of my life, mate. Story of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I can't feel that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, um, yeah. So you know, it will hopefully, hopefully, we will meet again. Have a, a long distance high five. Yeah, 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 virtual hug, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Okay, mate, right, that is the end of the show. So a big thanks to John Artson for coming on and a big thanks to you guys for listening. Look after yourselves, be lucky, and until next week, come on, come you ones. It's Macy's Labor Day sale, so gear up as summer cools down with 30% off timeless looks from Levi's and specials like 30 to 50% off statement-making shoes for her and 60% off luggage from Samsonite and more. Or use your coupon or Macy's card and get an extra 20% off more great deals. Plus, Star Rewards members can earn rewards even faster during Macy's Star Money bonus days. Going on now. Savings off regular sale and clearance prices. Exclusions apply. Heard my little sis is buying a car. You'll need my secret guide. Gross, no way. I already used Capital One Auto Navigator. I bet your credit score... Wasn't impacted at all, so ha! I got my real rate and monthly payment, had an amazing test drive at the dealership, and made the purchase. Taking the easy way out. That's so you. Still not getting it. That's so you. Capital One, what's in your wallet? 
Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Autonavigator. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.